Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. Good day, bed crimers. Hope you guys are all doing great. To anyone new here, a warm welcome. Thank you for checking out my channel. Let me just ask that if after listening to or watching this video, you find that you enjoyed it or learned something, do me a favor, hit that like button and consider subscribing. Now, let's get started. Today, Suspect Brian Koberger, who is accused of being behind the brutal crime in Moscow, Idaho, and who waived his right to challenge his arrest, is being flown back to Idaho. Lucky for him, he's going by plane instead of by bus. Not that he deserves any creature comforts if he is indeed proven to be the perpetrator, but let's remember he's innocent until proven guilty. On Tuesday, January 3rd, Koberger was assigned a provisional defense attorney ahead of his return to Moscow, where he will face a judge. That provisional defense attorney is Ann Taylor. Taylor's office is in the city of Kur Delen, that's 80 miles away from Moscow, Idaho. That's also, coincidentally, where victims Kaylee Gonzalez and Maddie Mogan grew up. Ann Taylor, an Idaho native, is a graduate of Idaho State University. There she earned a bachelor's degree in political science and a master's degree in public administration. She earned her doctorate degree from the University of Idaho in 1998. Since then, she's practiced law at the federal, state, and local level. Her specialty is criminal defense, and she went to work for the Kootenai County Public Defender's Office in 2004. Prior to that, she was in public practice for the firm of Palmer, George, and Taylor for five years. Taylor also serves on the board of the Idaho Association of criminal defense attorneys and is death penalty certified in Idaho. I don't think it's by coincidence that Taylor has been assigned to defend Brian Koberger. In an article from June 24, 2017, in the Cour d'Elan Post Falls Press, Taylor is quoted as saying this of criminal defense work. It's such necessary work. It's important to make sure constitutional rights apply to everybody. You help people who are facing horrible times. I love the work, end quote. So it sounds like Brian Koberger will have a very strong advocate in Ann Taylor and will get his rights to due process met. In addition to Taylor being assigned to the case on Tuesday, Tuesday was also the day that Judge Megan Marshall of Latte County issued a sweeping gag order blocking prosecutors, police, and the defense from discussing the case. And Tuesday was also when public defense attorney Ann Taylor was spotted with a group of investigators at the King Road crime scene. Three men and two women were at the infamous house around noon, and they spent about 45 minutes taking video footage inside and outside the property. Four of the investigators then left the property, but a crime scene reconstruction analyst remained there. What's odd about that is it's apparently highly unusual for defense attorneys paid by the state 
to create costly reconstructions of crime scenes. Ex-detective and attorney Ted Williams said this on Fox News. The fact that Brian Koberger's attorney has brought in private investigators to go throughout this crime scene leads me to believe that he's definitely going to mount a strong defense. So perhaps the authorities, as they did with Richard Allen in the Delphi case in Indiana, want to ensure that Koberger gets all his due process rights met under the U.S. Constitution, and this might even signal their desire to seek the strongest possible punishment for Koberger if he is found guilty, where he would be done in, if you know what I mean. When you seek that, you have to be sure that the person who is convicted is truly the individual who committed the crime. It'll be interesting to see how Brian Koberger gets on with this female lawyer. Some expert criminal profilers believe that part of Koberger's motive may have been a symbolic retribution against the females who allegedly bullied him in high school and who continued to reject him even after he went to great lengths to try and change what he may have considered his flaws. We heard Koberger was quite overweight, nearly 300 pounds at one point, and that he lost a 100 or so pounds between his junior and senior years in high school, which is also when he allegedly got addicted to the big H. Former FBI special agent Jennifer Koffendoffer has said she believes this crime is a femicide, meaning the perpetrator's main targets were the females in that house. Koffendoffer also thinks that Ethan Chapin was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, which it does feel like. We've also heard from former classmates of Brian Koberger of how badly he wanted to be part of the cool kids clique, but never was accepted. It does sound like no matter what Koberger tried, he always ended up being blocked from his goal and basically rejected as if the other kids sensed something was off and wanted no part of him. Dr. Gary Brucato, a clinical psychologist and researcher who specializes in the topic of severe violence, including crimes committed by serialists, in the context of severe mental illness, personality disorders, and other factors, and who appeared on Surviving the Survivor yesterday, described Koberger, if he is found guilty, as a nobody who decided to take lives, end quote. It does sound like Koberger worked hard to try and be seen as someone special, someone who was admirable due to his intelligence. And we've heard how he tried to get dates with female staff at a brewery in Pennsylvania and where he tried to charm them. But instead of doing that, he came across as creepy and a little too comfortable after two to three beers. It was so bad that the manager had to confront Koberger the next time he showed up at the brewery. Dr. Brucato also described the perpetrator as being manipulative and someone who was driven by an egotistical need to control other people. So if Koberger is the perpetrator, it sounds like after failing to be embraced by females and his classmates and peers, even at Washington State University, 
he finally got to the point where he maybe wanted to take charge and force his power over others. What better way to do that than plan a crime in which he has total control over his victims? We know by the nature of the weapon used, a large, sharp-edged object, and by the hour when the crime was committed, a time when the students were said to be in their beds, either sleeping or in the act of falling asleep, that the perpetrator basically had total control over them, aside from the struggle that Zana put up, possibly also Ethan Chapin, who I believe Koberger was surprised to see inside the house. If Dr. Brucato is right, then Koberger's egotistical needs may explain why he was allegedly commenting about the crime on Reddit. If that was him behind the various posts and videos, then he was engaging in what Dr. Brucato describes as boasting behind the curtain. Some of Koberger's students at Washington State University, where he worked as a teaching assistant, have said that he seemed distracted after the crime, that he stopped leaving long notes on their papers and tests. In fact, he stopped leaving any notes. Could Koberger have been taking the time that he previously devoted to grading papers to instead check out Reddit? to see what people were saying about the crime and speculating about the perpetrator, and then anonymously talking about what he likely thought was his perfect crime. It certainly sounds like that could be the case. Dr. Bricado also expressed a concern that by everyone talking about Brian Koberger so much, we're all adding to his colossal ego. Dr. Brucato stated that he expects Koberger's egotistical need to be in charge will play out throughout the ongoing process of his arrest and trial by a jury, that he will likely resist admitting to the crime, which he has so far, and he will try to throw out red herrings in a sort of cat-and-mouse game with the authorities. And again, how will Koberger get on with his female public defender? Will he be able to charm her with his intelligence, as he appears to have done with two of his female professors? Or will he buck up against her, thinking he knows more than she does? Time will tell. Yesterday, we also got our first look at Koberger in video. What struck me was his commanding height. He's six feet tall his dark stare, the protrusion of his upper chest, which I think was down to him wearing protective layers behind his red jailhouse jumpsuit, and that he was said to have mouthed, I love you, to his family. If Koberger is truly the perpetrator of this particularly brutal crime, it's hard to imagine that he could feel love for anyone was him mouthing I love you to his family simply a mechanical behavior that he's developed over the years to mimic a caring, feeling human being? I honestly find it hard to believe that he can really feel love in his heart, even for his family, if he is the person who harmed those four innocent kids in such a brutal manner. He didn't accidentally hit them with a car. He took time to plot out the crime 
and then used a sharp-edged object to do the deed. This takes a special kind of cold-blooded, heartless blank. Use the word tiller, starting with a K. One of his family members was said to have sobbed in court. I'm sure his family has plenty to sob over. Who wants to believe that their family member, someone they just celebrated the holidays with, and who was sleeping in the parents' home when he was apprehended, could do such a thing? Whatever relationship they had before is now forever changed, even if they are currently supporting him, despite hearing about that DNA evidence. I would imagine there's a part of each one of them that is secretly asking themselves, could Brian have done this? And in their own horror, they're hoping and praying that he isn't the perpetrator. Former FBI Assistant Director Chris Swecker was on Fox and Friends this morning to talk about Koberger. And he said that whether he's represented by a public defender or a private one, the first thing that lawyer is going to do is challenge the sanitization of the crime scene in Moscow. Take a listen. You said something that was very interesting. You said no matter if it's a public defender who is defending Koberger or a private attorney, you said the first thing they're going to do is challenge the sanitization of the crime scene. Why do you say that? Well, as I read up on it, I don't know how far they got into the, the cleaning up or sanitization of the, of the house. But, you know, I'm a former prosecutor before I went in the FBI. And you, you always have to be really tuned into due process being afforded the defendant. You don't want to create issues and, and defenses that don't already exist. And in this case, you could you could argue that sanitizing that house is basically denying the defense an opportunity to gather their own evidence. And I think that's probably why the investigators, the defense investigators, are already inside the house. It's a due process issue. You have to give the defense every opportunity at the, to gather evidence and analyze evidence at the crime scene or any information that might tend to exonerate the defendants. So basically what Schwecker is saying is that by starting the cleanup procedure at the primary crime scene, i.e. the house on King Road, before Koberger's defense counsel could go inside and gather and analyze their own evidence, the Moscow Police Department may have created a due process issue. And that would be an issue where Koberger's defense could argue that their client was not treated fairly and that his rights under the U.S. Constitution were violated. This is why the cleanup at the off-campus house at 1122 King Road was immediately halted upon news of Brian Koberger's arrest. Someone above whoever ordered the cleanup realized this could be an issue, and that's also why the defense counsel immediately went to the house to check out the crime scene yesterday. Swecker says he hopes the cleaners did not get too far along in the cleanup, so it would appear the decision to get that house cleaned up and sanitized so quickly was a misstep by the Moscow police. But we have to also stop criticizing them because they did find this guy in seven weeks, and Koberger seems to have the makings of a serialist. So they may very well have spared some future victims of him. 
Swecker went on to say that this case is inherently a circumstantial one because there were no witnesses who actually saw Koberger in the act of committing the crime. He said, yes, they have that video of the white Elantra, but even with that, you don't have any tags on the Elantra connecting it to Koberger in that image. Swecker also stated that although there was that DNA match, the case is not necessarily a slam dunk. The investigators will have to gather every last piece of evidence and then make a solid case that no one other than Brian Koberger could be the perpetrator. By the way, sources said to be close to the investigation are saying that Koberger was found when DNA at the crime scene from an unknown source was located. So in all the copious amounts of red stuff that primarily belonged to the victims, somehow the crime scene analysts found a lesser amount of red stuff belonging to someone who should not have been inside those bedrooms. They then ran that DNA through CODIS and failing to find a match, then ran it through a genealogy site where lo and behold, matches popped up. Through those people, they were then able to narrow the field by looking for a relative who lives near Moscow, Idaho, and who drives a white Hyundai Elantra. Then it is believed the FBI agents who tracked Koberger managed to get their hands on an item that he discarded. And then bingo, they had their DNA match and they had their perpetrator. Isn't science amazing? Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories, do me a favor, smash that like button.